0: What stuck with me too is how we're just exporting our problems. Yes, we get a better price, but at what cost?
1: You mess with nature and i will kick your butt. Do you wish plastic pollution would magically disappear? Wave your wand and everyone is buying secondhand? Alakazam and recycling is demystified. We do. Your hosts, Oakley J. Fast, a chemical engineer, and Sarah Fuentes, a waste and recycling expert, are here to demystify the circular economy. Welcome to Trash Magic.
0: Today's episode, we're doing a book review. Sarah and I did a little book club.
1: Our first and ever book club. I
0: know. <laughs> and it's called Unraveled, The Life and Death of a Garment by Maxine Bada. And she, this book is amazing. I could not put it down.
1: It was such a good book. It's Especially all the travels that she did to complete the book. And then I really loved how she painted this picture from 6,000 BC to 20. 20- 21.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it's really crazy. So to give the audience like a little context. So basically what Maxine did was she was trying to start a quote, sustainable clothing brand and realized it's kind of impossible because she could never find out where things were made or where the cotton was grown. Like there was no transparency in the supply chain. So she took it upon herself to follow the entire life cycle of a pair of jeans from the cotton production to fiber production, to cut and sew, to distribution, to purchase, to disposal. And it takes her all over the world. It is incredible. And what is so cool is that she gives us a a lot of great numbers, but she says it herself. Numbers alone don't tell a story. She really goes into the life of the people who are creating these clothes and who are impacted by the waste afterwards. So I thought that was really powerful, um, how she really has it very people focused. I would I would
1: agree with that. I think the thing that like really impressed me was her travels and seeing the the manufacturing and really getting involved and being hands-on and really wanting to paint this picture for us which I greatly appreciated because you know we all wear clothes every day cuz it's the law. <laughs> so <laughs> so we're mandated to wear clothes. We can't just be naked. And I really never really thought about the cotton production and all the hands that it touches in order for me to have a piece, a piece of clothing.
0: God, that is so true. I think that that's really what opened my eyes to and how much, you know, a piece of clothing travels before it even gets to us. And then after we dispose of it. So today we're going to go through all of that. We're going to review the book in the life cycle <laughs> Scheme. But I first just wanted to kind of give a little background about the fashion industry that we learned, which is yeah. that, you know, what was really eye-opening to me was that the fashion industry has driven so much slavery, has driven so much colonialism, has driven so much greenhouse gas emissions, has driven, you know, all of these things, but it's still thought of as quote, girly because it's just fashion. You know, and she talks about how hard it was to get attention from people about the impact of this industry because it was thought of as girly. And okay, let's think about it this way it's a $2.5 trillion industry, and it emits this, the fashion industry emits at least the same greenhouse gas emissions as France, Germany, and the UK combined. So does that sound very girly like, or like speaking as girly as frivolous, which shouldn't be an equivalent term, but, you know, that just doesn't sound like something we should write off to me at all.
1: No, I would. I have to agree with you there, Oakley. I mean, the fact of the matter is that this industry generates a lot of pollution and justifies the fact that they hide behind. I feel like it, hide, it uses the girly, quote unquote, um, to hide behind. So it's mm. almost masks. It masks it,
0: Ooh, you know. That's so true.
1: So, oh, because it's girly, we shouldn't take it that seriously. Well, guess what? This is, that's not the case. When we think about how it invokes slavery here in the United States and the thought process around what, in the book, how they called it, uh, cotton was white gold, mm-hmm. right? And how we, this is really what happened here in America is that, the you know, people, were stolen brought to america and then enslaved to to produce cotton mm-hmm. why because because of the power that the fashion industry or the the textile industry had mm-hmm. and back then it wasn't it wasn't fashion it was textile right mm-hmm. so the textile industry had all this power and was and was willing to really just do whatever it took to get keep all this power and it was just an eye opening uh for me because we all knew about slavery we all knew but i really didn't think about what was the behind factors of what were they growing and why were they growing mm-hmm. and now that i think about it it was it's kind of convicting when you're when we're wearing a pair of jeans and we're advocating for anti-slavery or we're yeah. wearing clothes and we're advocating for anti slavery even still to this day. And we won't, I, I don't wanna uh, get into what we have observed in the manufacturing yet, but we still observe unhumane behavior in some of these manufacturers that are, that are um, manufacturing our clothing overseas.
0: Completely. It's modern day slavery, for sure. (laughs) Like, There's no other way to put it. But yeah, um, it's so true that essentially the way that she talks about it in the book, too, is that clothing used to be animal hides, you know, it used to be all of these relatively uncomfortable materials, but cotton was worn in India since 6000 BC, as you said, Sarah, and... And as soon as Europeans found this incredibly soft material, it became man, it started being grown around the world, and then drove drove slavery. So here we are today, everyone. <laughs>
1: <Yep>. <laughs> All right. the numbers don't lie, and the fashion yeah. industry is hiding behind the girly totally uh, title. Totally, in, in retrospect, they're a behemoth a behemoth of emitter of gas emissions, and mm-hmm. we need to call them out.
0: <laughs> totally. So so let's take you audience through this journey of how a pair of jeans is created, worn and disposed of. So we'll start where the book starts, which is fiber creation. So that's cotton farms, that's cotton growing. And what we learned in the book is about organic cotton, so she visits an organic farm. And I didn't know this but only of cotton produced is organic cotton. And the other type of cotton is called conventional cotton. And she makes this point in the book that it shouldn't be called conventional because conventional cotton is used to, by using tons of fertilizers and pesticides and herbicides and all these things. And there's nothing conventional in terms of nature (laughs) for this cotton. So I really liked that. We shouldn't call it conventional cotton. We should call it like chemical cotton or something. I don't know. (laughs)
1: <laughs> no, it it's something that was really eye-opening about the differences between the organic cotton and the conventional cotton. And kind of when it goes into talking about what were the barriers to farmers converting their farms to organic farming, and it didn't seem very rewarding
0: for Not them at
1: all. at all. And it almost seemed... Oxymoronic in in the regards to how to transition. Mm. It had all these stipulations, and 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 it and at the end of the day, yes, we understand that it's more environmentally sound, but they had put so many barriers to being able to make this transition, which was kind of discouraging.
0: You're so right. It was like they had to prove that they didn't use any chemicals for three years. There was like a fifteen hundred or huge fee. It's taking out of your profits and also mm-hmm. when you switch to organic you're going to have less yield because you don't have all these chemicals helping you you know prevent pests so yeah you're right it's a huge risk for farmers to do organic to begin with so there's there's not a lot of incentive
1: one of the things that when we when we were reading the book and it talked about the the soil of mm-hmm. the crops and it's something that really resonated with me because, you know, m- me being Native American and respecting Mother Earth, where I think it was Carl said, you mess with nature and I'll kick your butt. <laughs>
0: yeah, and, and Carl was an organic uh, farmer, organic cotton farmer.
1: And, and when when he said that, It really resonated with me because it's like this thought process that Mother Earth, no matter what, is going to be resilient. And no matter what, it's going to make you wish that you obeyed her, (laughs) whether it's through a tornado or a flood (laughs) or an earthquake or whatever the case may be. And here we are really destroying Mother Earth Mm -hmm. with these chemicals. And then we're wondering why that the yields are not producing as well or we're not getting as much growth. It's just a real indication that at the end of the day, we have to be really respectful of mother earth. And it's just, man, Mm -hmm. it just really was an eye opener to me, um, Mm -hmm. around the fiber creation and how much time, energy, money, and resources, and also destruction Mm -hmm. that is taking place.
0: Oh, yeah, it's incredible. So it kind of reminds me of the interview that we had with Dr. Kat Knauer, where she talks about plastic and how, you know, in ideal world, we would be reusing all of the plastic that we've ever made and just keep reusing it in circular and recycling it, etc. And I feel the same way about fibers and textiles. Because you see how much cotton takes to produce and that load on the planet. And then we're going to follow this whole path during this, you know, course of this podcast. It just doesn't make any sense to me why textiles are not something that are, are recycled as well. So anyway, we'll get to that. But yeah, to your point about soil, you know, it just turns into dirt with no no life in it no bacteria no microorganisms when we put chemicals into it and so that's kind of the beauty of organic there are downsides to organic too which she discusses in the book but you're totally right we all need rest even soil and yep. you know she uses this quote diversity is key to stability and that's true with nature that's true with companies that's true with planet earth that's true with people so you know we really need crop rotation and all of these traditional practices to come back. So let's move on a little bit to fiber production. So once the cotton is is taken from the farm, it's taken to a gin where, you know, that fiber is is taken apart from the pod and the seed. And what was really crazy to me is that immediately the farmer Carl doesn't know where his cotton goes. He takes it to the gin and then it's like a mystery. The gin then sends it to a mill maybe overseas. And you know, it's like the transparency of of the supply chain it immediately is lost.
1: Yeah, that was that was pretty intense. The gin in itself was like is like a collective, if my memory serves me correctly, right. of all these manufacturing, and so it's almost like that they have all the farmers by their throat. At least that's how it was perceived. Like they have to be able to produce so much yield in order to make the money to cover the cost for all of their year's labor or their season's labor. And even if they wanted to know, they don't they're not getting the answers that they want.
0: Yeah, exactly. once it's turned into fiber, um, it's most likely well it's most likely turned into fiber and died in China. Okay, this was absolutely mind-blowing. I'm going to quote this from the book. Between July 2019 and July 2020, China produced 45.86 billion meters of fabric. That's enough fabric to wrap around the earth more than 1,219 times. Yeah. That is mind-blowing. That's insane. Okay, why do we need that much fabric? Yeah, what are we doing
1: with it?
0: Why? And that was one of my big thoughts throughout this entire book, is all of these people who are killing themselves over Mm -hmm. producing these garments do we need that many garments can we maybe pay them more and get less garments and everybody will be happier (laughs) like i don't understand
1: um, well we we learn this in the book too about production right and the methodical um ways of production and really just this manufacturer almost human machines and Mm -hmm. the thought that all this material is being made overseas is a clear indication of how some of these people are being treated and what they're being paid because in america we have clear labor laws Mm -hmm. very clear labor Mm -hmm. laws that we abide by like the california labor board like we could Mm -hmm. we could call them and they would help us advocate for ourselves Mm -hmm. against our employer Well, if we have 90 plus percent of all textiles made out of America as Americans, we're also contributing. And this was a harsh reality for Mm -hmm. me. We're also contributing to women abuse because Mm -hmm. in the book, it clearly goes into how women are being sexually abused, being bullied, um, being uh, having to work uh, hours, hours on end and them having to get coverage just to go to the bathroom? Yeah, that's insane. Just for a piece of clothing? I'm sorry, but that I mean, I feel like a human's well-being is way is worth way more than all these meters of fabric.
0: Wow, you said it so well, so well. And what stuck with me too is how we're just exporting our problems. We're exporting our water pollution we're exporting our carbon footprint we're exporting our workers rights we're expo- you know by exporting these things yes we get a better price but at what cost you know we're getting a better cheaper price but at the cost of women abuse of water mm-hmm. pollution of carbon and you know what it's one planet just because carbon emissions are happening overseas doesn't mean that we're not all affected by it you know and of course those those of lower income are very disproportionately affected by it, but it's about time that we take responsibility for where things are made and how people are treated. If we export it overseas, we're still responsible for that.
1: We're still responsible. We are now able to turn a blind eye because we don't see it, right? When the Clean Water Act in 1972 and the EPA put this Clean Water Act in place, American companies then moved their production to China, India, and everywhere else. And doing this so, these limitations are now obsolete because it's not done in our own country, so yes. there, so you are absolutely right when we're shipping our problems and avoiding our own accountability mm-hmm. for the sake of a garment.
0: Mm-hmm. And it seems
1: pretty intense but this is these are the facts.
0: Yeah, no, you're absolutely right and it it brings up the image to me that was so profound in the book. So Maxine goes to a textile production factory in China. And she kind of sneaks out the back of the factory to see what the water is like in the river outside. And it's black. It is just a black river from all of the dyes and all of the chemicals. And so there's this image of this black river. And then at the end of this river, she sees a female farmer. And the water from this river, you know, this this toxic river is growing her food. 5,800 agents are used in textile production. That's insane. that's insane and it's insane. in bangladesh she says that three rivers are biologically dead that means that that means that no not even a bacteria can live there <laughs> you know so we're talking about access to water becoming scarcer and scarcer and and, and what for a piece of clothing you know which is already and so abundant when
1: we look at the financial aspect of it too We're talking about the difference between saving 25 cents per garment.
0: That blew my mind. You need to repeat that.
1: So when we're talking about the financial aspect of why this is, why we are polluting so much, why we are sending it overseas, it's because we're able to save 25 cents per garment.
0: Yes. And to me...
1: It's, it's almost like I'm sure a lot of Americans and a lot of other people, if they knew that they paid an extra 25 cents per garment, they would to have mm-hmm. a sense of humanity in, in a clean environment.
0: Yep. I, I'm going to read this exact quote because I think people really need to hear it. So here's the quote from the book. If H&M raised the cost for a t-shirt by 12 to 25 cents it could allow the worker to earn a living wage.
1: <laughs> 12 to 25 Five cents. cents, people. Not dollars. 12, cents. Yeah. Cents to have our, our, these women that are being in unhealthy environments, abused, mentally abused, physically abused. That's all we have to pay per garment.
0: Yep. That yep. to me
1: is worth it.
0: Yeah. Without but, a doubt.
1: But we don't get to make that decision. Yeah, unfortunate.
0: Right, right. Completely. And she talks a little bit about how we can use our power as consumers and as citizens to to make an Mm -hmm. impact. So I want to review where we've come from and where we're going. Um, So we've talked about fiber creation, growing organic cotton with Carl. We've talked about sending that that cotton then overseas to actually be created into fiber in China and then died and that sort of thing as well in Bangladesh. So now let's talk about cutting and sewing. You know, cutting and sewing happens in Bangladesh, in, in China. And again, I'm going to quote the book because she says it so perfectly. So, so we're talking about 25 cents. We're talking about why don't we pay these people more? And I bet everybody's thinking about, well, how do we support the economy? And at least they have a job and all these things. Okay, so this is her response to this we can do better than to argue that these horrible conditions are just the cost of economic growth. In a supply and demand world, supply alone is not the answer. I mean, how how better can you put it? There are things more important than money, and there are ways to grow the economy while still treating people well.
1: I have to say that that you, you make a very valid point, and in the book they talk about how these people that are sewing all our garments are human machines. Mm-hmm. And it made me think of like, when I drive by Amazon here in Silicon Valley mm-hmm. and artificial intelligence, and it makes me think about where are we going in the future? Mm-hmm. And as well as have we really learned, have we really learned because we don't e- we can't even seem to treat our humans with decency, respect. It doesn't matter if they live in Bang- Bangladesh or in the United States. Mm-hmm. It's so f- for me, it's like, man, these low wages, these people aren't protected by anybody. And, and it's like, what? So we can pump out 165 garments per hour or 170 garments per hour, whatever that range is, so we can have a cheap shirt? like
0: Right. Yeah. yeah. In the book, she interviews this woman, Rima, in Bangladesh, and she said, she says that the factory feels like a cage. And she's expected to sew 161 garments an hour. Okay, let me make it very clear to everybody. And this was actually something that I didn't really know. Your clothes are not sewn by a machine. Everything that is sewn on your garment is sewn by a real person. In every stitch, okay? There is a human being behind every stitch of clothing that you wear. It, it makes me
1: love my clothing more
0: right mm, now. So true. Like,
1: thank you, human for making me not walk around naked. Thank you for basically risking your life so I can have the shirt on my back and these underwear and the pants that I have on. 161
0: garments an hour. I can barely send that many emails in an hour. <laughs> There's no like, way. There's no <laughs> way. And they talk about like if somebody has to go to the bathroom or if they sneeze, <laughs> you know, like if you, if you take even a millisecond, you're behind. And no, those, those conditions are insane. And you know what? We just need to bring to light. I'm going to tell you about a horrible inc- incident that happened in Bangladesh that some of you may have heard of. And then we're going to talk about why the brands that use these factories like somehow brush off responsibility for it. So in April 2013, Rana Plaza in Bangladesh collapsed. It killed 1,134 people. And 2,500 more were injured. It was the worst industrial accident to date. Okay, this was in a factory that makes clothes. How many of us have actually heard about this incident? How many of us have taken action from it? How did this even happen in the first place? This is how it happened. The building wasn't up to code, and literally the vibrations from the machines that were making the clothes, the sewing machines, everything that was using to make the clothes, that vibration caused the building to collapse. Plus, the doors were locked, which is illegal, should be illegal internationally.
1: I just don't, I, after really understanding that this is what happens in order for us to have our clothes, it makes me really feel better about shopping secondhand and, and thrifting yeah. because at least, like, Maybe this, yes, I know that, yes, it's somebody else has already gone through this pain to make that piece of clothing, but at least it's not still like by the clothing that I'm already buying, it's already been done, that damage has already been done, and I'm not causing to the problem of continuing the damage. If that
0: absolutely, absolutely. A key principle in circular economy, you know, this idea that the economy should be regenerative to the earth is this keeping value as long as possible and, you know, keeping something around as long as possible. If that looks like Mm -hmm. secondhand or repairing, et cetera, plus textile production. So the cotton and the dyeing and the, you know, making it into a fiber is 75% of the clothing industry's carbon footprint. So just making that fiber is 75% of the footprint. If we use that pair of jeans longer and not buy a new pair, that's 75% of the carbon footprint right there.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, and it's, it's style now to have, torn up holy jeans so
0: yeah exactly keep them alive, people keep them
1: alive yeah, for real I
0: have I have jeans with holes in them that like I legit have worn into them right and they're like <laughs> I kind of wear them with pride right
1: yeah so, me too um, my grandma doesn't like holy jeans even though she's a she's a holy roller I said why not grandma Jesus loves them too I'm
0: holy <laughs> that is genius <laughs> I love that oh
1: that's
0: hilarious. Okay, so, Let's talk about why this incident happened, why nobody's taking responsibility. So, you know, she talks about a lot in this in the book about the race to the bottom. And I think in Ethiopia, they can pay people like 16 US dollars a month. So, the reason that these low wages are possible is because these workers are not protected by anyone, they're not protected by their labor, labor laws. laws. They're not protected by the laws. They're not protected by the government because the government wanted to bring in industry and bring in money. And so they're just like at any cost, you know, so they're not protected by the management at the factory. They're not protected by the brands because if they don't abide by the brand's demand of price, guess where they're going somewhere else or some other country.
1: It was a harsh reality for me when I was like, I think I was 11 or 12 years old when I learned about. Uh, child labor laws um, Mm, mm. with some of these big brands and I actually boycotted wearing a particular brand anybody that really knows me knows what brand that is and I will not put that brand on blast but I do not wear a particular brand because of child labor laws and I had this principle and a lot of my friends are like what you don't wear this what because it's popular because it's like cool and everybody in the sports wears it and So for me, it's like, hey, as principles or holding principles to protection of people, I think it's important that we get to really just have this level of transparency with our audience today of what really inspired us to kind of read this book. For me, it was around really wanting to understand what took place in the life of a garment and now I understand that, yeah, garments were made actually here in the United States as well. I mean, we remember the gold rush and Levi Stratus was a really big company, but what happened? What, cha- what changed, you know?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, it's, it's such a great question. And she does, yeah, and she addresses it in the book, how we've transitioned from the U.S. from a manufacturing economy to a retail economy. So because we've outsourced our manufacturing, now all we do in the U.S. is marketing, (laughs) you know, like all we do Mm -hmm. is, is sell the thing. So this, this was so crazy to me how recent all of this happened to. In 1960, jeans were still likely made in the U.S. That's not that long ago.
1: I think the major thing for me is around what happened to, to our economy and Did that service long-term because I feel like those that have a sense of responsibility, they want to be able to have that ownership or that ability to have manufacturing done in the United States. But now we don't have the proper infrastructure Mm -hmm. to provide that as a service. When we think back to Carl, where did did his cotton go? Well, we Mm -hmm. don't know. So Mm -hmm. it's like the infrastructure has been taken away, dismantled. And now we're dependent on every other industry or every other country that we've partnered with uh, around this clothing textile industry to be transparent with us yet they're not. And we are mm-hmm. and we also know that they're not even advocating for their workers, which is another issue. Who's going to who's going to who's going to monitor that? Well, who's going to enforce that, right? Like
0: here's what's amazing is that brands may not even know which factories their clothes are being made. And people may ask, well how is this possible? Um, So this is something that I learned in the book. And Maxine even calls us out. She's like, I bet you've never even heard of this company. So there's a middleman that brands like Walmart, Kate Spade, Calvin Klein use to outsource their supply chain for clothing production. So the biggest company, this middleman is Lee and Fung. So basically this company then you know takes a contract from any of these big clothing manufacturers and finds the cheapest factory around the world that will make the clothing so then all these companies don't even know where their stuff is being made maybe they can ask so there's the lack in transparency just like carl the farmer doesn't know where his cotton goes maybe none of these companies even know where their clothing is made specifically like which factory so there's lack of transparency which means there's lack of responsibility
1: yeah. And this is why it's set up that way, right? It's basically, well, we have a third party and they're responsible for that. Exactly. They're supposed to tell us that. And so it takes them out of the hot seat, so to speak. And at the end of the day, the, the losers are the workers, mm. the environment, mm. and the winners are the big conglomerates, the big the big manufacturing companies, mm. and the, the the brands. Those mm. are the winners. And the ones that are kind of that are kind of that need to know the truth are the people that are buying it and that are supporting it. Period. Mm -hmm. We need to know the truth. We need to have an understanding. Now, maybe, maybe, maybe some people that are listening to this podcast today are gonna really think twice on who and what brand they buy from. All we're asking is is to look at alternatives and to really think about the the material that you
0: currently have and own. Like
1: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. who says that you can't wear it more than once? Who says that?
0: Yeah, so I just kind of want to lay it out for people, again, how this, uh, Maxine calls it, this responsibility hot potato, (laughs) you know, of like, how can terrible accidents like this happen and nobody take responsibility for it? So here's what happens. The brand hires Lee and Fong. So Walmart, Kate Spade, Calvin Klein, any of these people hire Lee and Fong. They find these, these factories, right? And the factories are forced to, abide by whatever price they want. Otherwise they'll go somewhere else. Okay. There is an auditing process, but it's not clear how robust this auditing process is. Also the auditing process is paid for by the clothing factory itself, which is an expense to them, which is money they can't then pay their workers. Then what the brand does is they write a code of conduct or like a policy where they're like, everybody needs to earn a fair wage. And, you know, they just cover their butt with these policies that they then give to the middleman, Lee and Fung, who are responsible for implementing it. And the auditors are responsible for implementing it. But in that way, the brand then can wash their hands of anything bad that happens because they're like, well, we have this policy and it's just words. That's it's a just joke. Words. It's, a, it's joke. a total joke.
1: There's a difference. Like, OK, so we know this as being a company that audits at SmartWaste, right? Like mm-hmm. if I see a red flag, I'm communicating to both parties, period. Like there's no way around that. Mm-hmm. So the fact that, you know, when we think about this at the end of the day, the company, the brand is responsible the for, you know to be able to enforce this because if it is a policy you also have to follow through otherwise it's all smoke and
0: mirrors yeah exactly exactly so there needs to be some sort of accountability and also she she makes the point that rich brands can have more power than a local government so maybe if brands change their policy things would actually change and and by policy i mean implementation of their policy <laughs> All right. Well, let's move on from this middleman to delivery. So once once the clothes are turned into fiber, dyed, cut and sewed, they're then delivered back to the U.S. and likely go through Amazon because Amazon is the largest apparel retailer in the U.S. by number of shoppers. Wow.
1: And when we think about these
0: companies like Amazon
1: that are hiring these workers, these drivers that are getting paid anywhere from, you know, 15 to $17 in the last mile. Cause we've talked about this in the last mile in our, in one of our other episodes mm-hmm. of, I think it was around, you know, uh, online shopping. Yeah.
0: It was on, <laughs> right? it was about like, Amazon.
1: Yep. Yeah. It was about Amazon and online shopping. Like it doesn't seem right or fair to me for the drivers that are, Bringing these materials to us to get paid maybe 150 times more than the people that have risked their lives to make the product <laughs> for
0: us. Like. Well, right. And then also that they get $15 an hour and would have to work 4 million years to make the same as Jeff Bezos. So it's just like we yeah. have this astronomical gap, right, in these incomes. And what we're seeing at Amazon is again, humans as machines just like we saw it with Rima in in Bangladesh with the cut and sew factory. It's crazy. And then if you've also ever seen an Amazon delivery driver, they drive like maniacs. And I think it's because (laughs) they're like timed. So anyway, Amazon, here we are again, but in the US, humans as machines.
1: Yeah, that that picture that they painted about what's happening here domestically. And obviously people need jobs, so they're willing Mm -hmm. to do whatever it takes. But the labor-intensive... Where these people are, once again, they have to stay in their their station. They're Mm -hmm. you know they you know they 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 have to have somebody relieve them before they could leave because of production and output. It it was almost similar to the manufacturing with the clothes, but there is nowhere near as a inhumane workspace Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. we're here domestically in the United States. But just to like see the similarities on the the front end and the back end was kind of eye opening for me.
0: Very, very much so. Completely agree. The whole supply chain can take an injection of humanity for sure. All right, let's move on to, let's move on to disposal. So to trash, we buy these clothes and we wear these clothes. Okay. The jeans have way too many holes in them. They're unrepairable. Where do they go? So a lot of us go to Goodwill or ARC and we donate our clothes. I was so curious to hear about this because I didn't know what really happens to my clothes once I drop them off at Goodwill's door. So here's a fact for you from the book. 80% of donations leave a donation store floor not in the arms of individuals, but packed into huge bales headed many places, including overseas. Okay, that means only 20%, maybe, of what we donate is actually sold to somebody.
1: Yeah, and that, that brought up a point when we thought about, okay, what items are we donating? Mm-hmm. Are they usable items, and are they sellable items, and would totally. you buy that item again? Um it it was kind of alarming to think that hey we think we're doing good by donating and we're relieving ourselves of this guilt so to speak but really we're contributing still to another pro- problem of waste at the end of the day because of over consumerism right like
0: mm-hmm.
1: or just consumerism in general
0: yeah and and we think about low quality clothing and how we're producing more low quality clothing, well, then the secondhand life of a low quality t-shirt isn't gonna be that long. That's, That's only one person it can make it through, right? If we're, mm-hmm. if we're making more high-quality clothing, maybe it really can last. Maybe we would have a better output of this 80% of donations, right? So where do these things go that are not sold? Some of them go to... First, they go to graders, what's called graders, who decide what level of quality of clothing. And this happens in Ontario, in India, in Pakistan. And so then they grade these clothes. Some of them are turned into commercial rags. Some of these are turned into furniture stuffing or insulation. Some of it goes into the landfill. Okay, cool. So maybe some of it is reused. That's awesome. But the most fascinating location that these secondhand clothes that are not sold domestically in the U.S. go to is in Ghana. Had you ever heard of Contamanto in Ghana, Sarah, before never, reading this book?
1: Never, never. I've heard of Ghana. <laughs>
0: <But> <laughs> so in Accra, Ghana, um, there's a massive secondhand market for clothing called Contamanto, and the hundred ships each week come in carrying four hundred bales, and each bale is one hundred and twenty-one pounds of clothing. <laughs> so, an in, in enormous amount of secondhand clothing comes into these ports, and they're then graded again. So, remember, we had them graded first to see if they were commercial rags or whatnot in Ontario and India and Pakistan, and now they're in Ghana being graded again to be sold in the secondhand market.
1: To me, when you think about grading clothing after it's been transferred that many times, it just says a lot about the infrastructure of where it ends up, right? Like, at least in my mind, like they're looking at, and I still look at clothing as a commodity. And that just is based on my industry of seeing all materials as commodities. And I see the value in these commodities, especially now understanding of all the resources, lives, and And energy that's put into this. I mean,
0: (laughs) yeah. And it's really interesting because in the book, there was this idea in Ghana that these clothes must have come from a dead man because who would just give away their clothes? Like, unless you were dead, why would you give them away? So, this was interesting that most of the world's clothing comes from just three countries the US, the UK, and Germany. So, we're just Producing all this secondhand clothing, and remember again, this secondhand clothing is getting worse and worse quality. So by the time it gets to Contamanto, these garments are just like falling apart. So you know they had first, second, and third selection garments, and they used to have fifty percent first selection, meaning you know fifty percent of the bag was high quality clothing. Still, in in two thousand eight, as recently as two thousand eight, but today it's only ten percent. Only 10% is still high quality clothing by the time it makes it to the secondhand market in Ghana, in Accra.
1: Well, I mean, and that goes into that, the, one of the facts that we read in the book around, you know, for every three garments that are purchased, two are trashed.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: So even though you might think that you're donating and you're giving it a second life, are you really?
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Maybe it's better for us to go directly to the homeless people in our neighborhood and ask them if Mm. they need clothes or a sweater. Um, because that's something that we do, you know, in in my family. Mm -hmm. Um, and, you know, also in my family, we, since we have such a big family, we, we love hand-me-downs. So hand-me-downs go to my, to my nephew or, uh, depending on which way can go to, from my mom to me or me to my mom, depending on where I'm at and my weight loss, (laughs) (laughs) right?
0: Well, and here's the other thing that people don't really think about is that those clothes that are not sold in the secondhand market are then disposed of in Ghana. So Mm -hmm. not only are they shipped across the world, but then they're thrown away in in a landfill that's less environmentally friendly or maintained. When Maxine was visiting this landfill um, close to the market, it was on fire you know, it was just burning.
1: Yeah, that is Um, crazy. And it was
0: accidental. It was not an intentional fire. I feel like we would also be doing a disservice by not mentioning, again, women who are affected at this part of the supply chain. So in Cantamanto, there are young women called Kaye, I think, Kayaya, and they're head porters. And they carry these 121 pound bales on their head and they get $9 a week max. Okay, so... Uh, throughout this entire story, we've seen women really suffering. And I, I just need to mention that even after we hand it off, when we think that it's disposed of, you know, women are still being affected negatively. I
1: mean, to carry 121 pounds or 120 pounds is really hard. Like yeah, on I, your head, I, like I, imagine I, your on neck your and head, shoulders. Like, yeah. And it's just insane to think about Is it really girly or is it, you know, why is, why is it that in this situation or in this, in this context, it should be like the girly aspect shouldn't be, have a bad connotation It should really have like this strength connotation because the women that have helped produce all of our clothes for all of our years are really powerful. They're obviously doing it to support their family and their friends and their kids and their husbands. And so for for me, it's like, man, they're doing whatever it takes to make it happen for their family Uh, and taking our discards and carrying it on their head. It's really eye-opening to to see like what women are willing to do to provide for their family.
0: Yeah, and the lengths that they're willing to go, right? Mm-hmm. And and knowing that they have that heart and dedication and strength, what can then we do?
1: Mhm. What are like, the solutions, people? I know we solutions? talked about we talked about a lot and it got a little heavy. And we know that there's been a lot of sacrifice for a lot of people that to make to make our garments so some of the solutions we want to kind of bring to light today and really give people the opportunity to even share with us some, some solutions that maybe mm-hmm. we didn't talk about today. I think one of the ones that we kind of already mentioned is wearing garments as long as possible, wearing them not just once, because there are a lot of people out there that only buy garments and wear them once. I think that that's definitely a solution
0: we're not alone, right? How many things do we have tags on still? <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. And and then the other thing too is is the power of your purchase or the power of of what you buy, right? Mm-hmm. The power of the purse. Mm-hmm. Right? This is something that's really critical because if we stop buying, then the demand goes away. Then maybe the supply the supply will readjust their way of thinking of how they're doing business as long as we're communicating you know, why we can't stop buying.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And so people might think, well, I'm just one person. What does it matter? Well, your ripple effect is powerful. Your ripple effect is meaningful. And what's one thing that you learned today on this podcast that changed your mind and will change your actions? And then you can communicate to other people. Sarah and I are just two people. If we have touched your life, then we, you know, or two people's lives, we've already We've already expanded our our sphere of influence, right?
1: Yeah. And that ripple effect, right? That's really why we do what we do. I think circular economy is not there to say, oh, we want you to buy more. No, really. We want you to buy less. We want you to be mindful about your purchases and think about what happens to the end of life of that thing that you're buying, whether Mm -hmm. it's an electronic or a, a piece of clothing, Cause there's a lot of things that go into making these things that we use our money for.
0: Mm-hmm. Totally. Um, totally. And she talks about how sustainable fashion is slow fashion. Mm-hmm. So that means like wearing what you already have is the most sustainable thing you can do. Then buying secondhand, then buying new, but from a company that you know is, you know, trying its best ethically, you know, so it kind of, there's this hierarchy. Um, Okay, so what else can we do? We can hold companies accountable for actually implementing these policies that they talk about. Definitely. The only 20 fashion companies hold 95% of profit. If we can influence them, even if one of those 20 fashion companies takes a stand and then they announce it and they have so many people behind them buying their clothes or supporting them, then that'll take a shift in the whole industry. In my mind, it takes one or two companies to start setting the precedent. And it starts with us, the consumers. We're the ones that that give them our money, right?
1: Yeah. And I think the consumers get to demand that the governments need to make policy changes worldwide, right? Mm, like if yeah. all the consumers said, and and obviously this is a stretch, but if all the consumers uh, were to make this demand, then there would be shifts immediately. There would be changes immediately in, in terms of how these policies mm-hmm. around human rights basic human rights to take a break and to go to the bathroom are being upheld i'm not talking about having a, a gold floor plated mm-hmm. and having you know reverse osmosis water dripping from the sky on you like no i'm talking about like just basic human rights
0: <laughs> yeah yes completely exactly exactly and and we can do this you know brands can stay committed to the factory versus trying to find this race to the bottom. They can they can stay committed to bringing a factory up and those people. Maybe we could just kind of summarize big thoughts from today. What kind of stood out for you, Sarah?
1: I think the the one of the things that really stood out for me is the lack of transparency in the supply chains because uh, a lot of consumers do want to know where their purchases come from. There are technologies that allow us to have this type of transparency from RFID chips to other logistic ways that we can have transparency to know where um, the farmer's yield is going to. There is a way to track it. But with that type of infrastructure requires you know, investment. I think the other thing too is, is just these big brands that hide behind the middleman. Mm. And I think it's weak. I think it's weak. I don't think it's uh, humane. And I think they need to be called out and I think it's important for us as consumers to know that we hold the power because we hold the we hold the purse, we hold the wallet. We're the ones that are feeding into it. So it's time for us as people to wake up and then help these people that are in these workplaces to have a, a union or have to have um, something that started here in the fashion industry or in the manufacturing industry with women. Back in the, in the forties and fifties. And that's even how labor laws even came into place was because these women were being abused in these
0: sewing factories. Mm. Oh, so well put as always, Sarah, you always say it so perfectly. Yeah. In a perfect world, we would have, you know, fibers grown with regenerative farming. We would have workers treated like human beings with fair wages and childcare and healthcare and all these things that Mm. are just basic human rights, right? And and we would have even people at Amazon being treated better and we would Mm. have very conscious purchasing. And then when we dispose of things, we would actually be reusing them in some way. We would be giving them a second life. So there is this ideal world that is possible. We just need to move towards it. And this is the first step is, yep. is understanding all these things.
1: So I think our call to everybody that's hearing us today is be an active citizen. Otherwise, we know that, that nothing is going to change, that things are going to remain the same, that things are going to remain, meaning that the the Black River is going to continue to run into that farmer's crop. The people, the women and, and men that are in industry are going to continue to have inhumane work environments and these big brands are going to continue to force their their supply chain down in cost so they can make that extra 12 to 25 cents per garment <laughs> and so we we are calling to all these citizens and any listener that's listening to us today to really rethink how you purchase we understand that, you know, you're you're you, you may need to get a new pair of underwear. You may need to get a a new pair of socks. We understand that, but all we're asking is let's be mindful of how we make these purchases in the future and who and where we're purchasing from.
0: Mm-hmm. Thank you, Sarah.
1: Thank you, Oakley.
0: Hey, everyone. We want to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Smart Waste. Smart stands for save money and reduce trash. So, what does Smart Waste do? We help you reach your zero waste goals, we help you be in compliance, we even take a look at downstream vendors who are handling your recycling and make sure that they're doing it in the right way. We can decrease your monthly trash bills, and we can even decommission buildings, avoiding the landfill altogether. We're basically just the experts on trash and helping you reduce your landfill waste. We believe in transparency, circularity, and people does your company care about the planet and want to save money on garbage hauling? Well, we'd love to talk to you. Book a free consultation at smartwasteusa.com meetings. That's smartwasteusa.com meetings. Back to the show.